No matter who you are, things in your life probably aren't going as expected, whatever that means. But the things you are doing right now, no matter what they are, that's your life. It's not a plan B. I'm your host, Madeline Mortensen, and you're listening to This Is Not A Backup Plan. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, welcome to the final week of March Sisters Madness. I have had such a fun March. I'm so glad that you've been here participating with me in the fun. And I'm so glad that I've had the opportunity to interview all of these awesome guests about one of my very favorite stories. When I think about Little Women, one of the things that just stands out in my mind is the food. I think part of the reason is because my first experience with the story was watching the movie, and the 1994 movie opens with Christmas and opens with giving away of breakfast to the Hummels, which is a scene that's just very, very strong. I think of Amy holding that orange and wanting to hold on to it, and then I think about the beautiful dinner sent over by Mr. Lawrence, and I've always just thought so much about that pink and white ice cream. And now that I'm older, I think a little bit about like, how was that transported? How was that kept cold? Like, what were they doing with it? And there are just so many other wonderful food moments in Little Women, the pickled limes and Joe's horrible dinner party. And so I knew that I wanted to have an episode focused on the food of Little Women. And when I thought about who the guest was, it was an obvious choice. Jenny Williams is an artist and is the brilliant mind behind the Carrot Top Paper Shop, which is a place where you can find all sorts of wonderful literary inspired gifts and stationery. I have many of her prints in my home. And she and her friend also started a podcast called Eat Like a Heroine. And a delightful thing that Jenny will tell you about in this interview is that that podcast was originally a book idea, became a podcast when they couldn't find someone who wanted to move forward with the book idea, and is now going to be a book. So it's come full circle. And I know that this is a book I'm going to be really, really excited to read. Jenny's Instagram is delightful. I love seeing her work. And I knew I liked her a lot. And then when I interviewed her for this podcast, she told me that she looked at some of my back catalog and she noticed that I had done an episode with my friend, Annie Foster. And she told me, I love Annie. I recognized her name from orders and I recognized her name from Instagram. And so just know when you shop with Jenny, you're shopping from a small business and you're shopping with someone who has a lot of heart and who will remember you and be so grateful for your order. And I just loved knowing that about Jenny and her shop. So enjoy this episode with Jenny and I hope it inspires you to not only eat like a heroine, but eat like a March sister. Hello, Jenny. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm really excited to have you here today. Will you just start out by introducing yourself? Yes. Thank you so much, Madeline. I'm very excited to be here. So my name is Jenny Williams. I have an online shop called Carrot Top Paper Shop. 
and it is, I call it a literary store for gift lovers. I have gift items and just bookish art, everything reader themed, specifically literary heroines. They're based on my favorite childhood classics like Anne of Green Gables and Heidi, Little House on the Prairie and all those books that we've all, we all love and have reread. And so yeah, my, my whole art is based and inspired by these great works of literature. I love your art so much. I have some of it. Actually, I think I moved, so I can't remember if I have any of it up yet, but I have it. I love it. And it's just very delightful. Oh, thank you. So in addition to your shop, recently you've put together a few podcasts for a podcast called Eat Like a Heroine. Can you just tell me a little bit about why that was something you wanted to do? Yeah, that's a great question because <laughs> like my shop is about, it has nothing to do with food. And then all of a sudden I come out and I'm like, hey, I'm doing this podcast called Eat Like a Heroine. So my friend, Laura Lee Craker, she's an author. She wrote a book. She's written many books, but the book that connected us was one that she wrote about Anna Green Gables and her adoption journey. She was adopted herself and she adopted her third child as well. So her memoir is called Anne of Green Gables, My Daughter and Me. That's the book I read that connected us. So that's where all of, that's where actually that was like the root of this podcast because Lori Lee called me one day and just said, I have a great idea. And it was actually a book idea first. She said, I have a great idea. I, I think we should write this book together and it's called Eat Like a Heroine. And my first reaction was like, I love all things heroines, but I'm not a cook by any means. I'm not like a professional chef. And she was like, oh, I'm not either. Anyway, so my trying to grasp the idea made me realize people aren't going to get this right away. But once we got into it, I realized like this is so much fun and it's really not about food at all. We are talking about food, but it's, I was thinking this morning, like the closest thing we have to time travel is to take recipes from the past and like recipes from Little Women and Anne of Green Gables, all these books that we've read. And they just, if you're eating the food that they ate, then it just feels like you're experiencing that like a relationship with them almost, or just like in a totally unique and fun way. Yeah. So then it turned into a podcast because we couldn't get a book deal in a timely fashion. But I will say, so we haven't announced this yet, but since this isn't coming out until March and it will be safe, definitely safe to say by then, but it actually is a book deal now. So it went from book idea to podcast and now it is going to be a book, but it's a podcast right now too. And we're not going to quit the podcast. Oh, that's so exciting. Congratulations. That's very Thank happy to have you. a book deal. Thanks. We're very excited. It's been a long, it's been like a two year journey, but once we kept getting rejections, we just thought like, okay, well, fine. Like we're going to take this into our own hands because this is way too much fun to keep to ourselves. Once you get into it, you just want to discuss it with other people. So the podcast allows for that. We get feedback and we get emails. We get to, it just feels more like a discussion with our readers and followers. And it's been a lot of fun. I love what you said about food being like one of the closest things we have to time travel, because if you're eating things that are similar to like what the characters ate, like that gives you an idea of the region. It gives you an idea of like their socioeconomic status, what they had access to, gives you an idea of what they valued. It gives you an idea of the techniques that they had. And that like ties you into a lot of elements of your characters' lives. Yes, absolutely. And there are things that you hear like since we're talking about Little Women, I'm sure you're familiar with the pickled limes. That was like all the rage in <laughs> in the one room schoolhouse back then. You're like, okay, I can picture what a pickled lime is. I guess it's probably like a pickle and it's probably sour. But reading about it, I've been reading this Little Women cookbook. That's fantastic. I have it in front of me, but it's there are a couple of them. But this one is by Jenny Bergstrom and Miko Osada. 
And it's like full of historical references. They just really did their research and it's really fun. But they describe what they think the pickled limes actually, what they would have been. And they were more like really bitter, not exactly like a pickle. You can pickle them in such a way, but they were like, we believe that the March sisters would have had this kind that traveled from India in brine for five months on a ship and they would have been like really inexpensive but also just trendy with students kind of like like a sour candy might be popular among children like it doesn't necessarily taste great but it's almost like a challenge or like taste this is wild but just yeah like knowing that about that little detail just opens up another layer that you wouldn't have known about otherwise. That's so interesting. And I'm glad you brought up pickle limes because I definitely want to talk about pickle limes because I think that's a very iconic food moment in Little Women. Before we talk too much about the food, will you just tell me what was your first experience with the story of Little Women? I probably watched the movie or a movie version of it. In fact, I think that's how that was my introduction was the black and white movie with Liz Taylor, right? Elizabeth Taylor, that's her name. Yes. The iconic actress who play, have you seen that one? She plays. No, Amy? I don't think I have. Okay. It's been a really long time since I've seen it, but I will say to this day, because I started with that movie in that movie, they make Elizabeth Taylor, Amy, and they make her the second, they make Beth the youngest sister. So to this day, I always get them. I always have to double think, wait, which one is actually the youngest? Because I I have the March sister bookmarks in my shop and I always order them from oldest to youngest whenever I send them out. And so I always just stumble over like, Amy is the youngest. Anyway, I'm even second guessing myself right now. But anyway, so I watched that movie and then I eventually read the book. But I think I like stopped before I finished. I had a few chapters left and to this day, it still haunts me. I don't know why, like why I would have stopped. Anyway, I read it again as an adult and loved it. So there, that's my journey with Little Women. (laughs) Oh, I love that so much. So I grew up with the 1994 one. So that was my first experience with this story. And then like, obviously, well, maybe not obviously, because I know there are some opinions about this, but I deeply love the 2019 one. I think it was like a very wonderful telling of this story. I did too. I really loved that one. So you brought up the pickled limes and I was going to ask you, like, what do you feel like for you is the most iconic food thing in Little Women? What do you think about what first comes to mind when you're thinking about food in Little Women? I would probably say the pickled limes. And then maybe secondly would be the blancmange that Joe takes to Lori when he has a sore throat. (laughs) I love what you were sharing about the pickled limes, like the context of where they were coming from. In my mind, I think I kind of imagined that this was just something they were making locally. But the idea that they were coming from across the world makes a lot of sense and why it would be something that the school children cared so much about. Yes, exactly. Yeah, because you don't realize you're making assumptions when you're reading it, but you just, you know, you're trying to give context to things. So that was exactly what I thought, too, is like, was Hannah making these at home for her? Like what? So it did make a lot of sense that they were. That's why they were fashionable. They were coming from overseas. And as you talked about time travel, like for the March sisters in a lot of ways, like that was one of the closest ways that they might be traveling and experiencing another culture. The idea that they would travel very far beyond their region of the United States wasn't super possible for them without the support of someone like Aunt March. Yeah, that's so right. And especially during a wartime, I'm sure that would add like another layer of escapism for them. 
So you mentioned the Blanc Mange. I like know what that like is now because I've done a little bit of Googling, but I feel like when I was reading the book, there's no way I would have known what that was. So can you like tell people about what that is? <laughs> I, I don't think I've ever tasted it, but it's basically like a milk pudding. And it, this cookbook says that it was served as a dessert or for invalids, which was confusing to me because normally you don't think about those two things being interchangeable. So I, then I was just curious about the sugar content because I was thinking like you wouldn't give like a lot of sugary desserts to a sick person but it doesn't I think it only has two tablespoons of sugar so it's pretty mild and then it's mainly just milk and eggs I believe it's like a custard kind of thing and I guess it looked really pretty because it would be like a white gelatinous thing (laughs) that doesn't necessarily sound beautiful but it was very popular at the time for sick people so I don't know it's all the rage so interesting. I did not know that. It's fun to see like how different traditions of taking care of people through food have evolved over time. Yes, that's been really interesting in our research. Like all of the cookbooks back then had a chapter dedicated to invalid cookery. That was like a thing. That was a category. So yeah, so much bone broth, of course, which is very nutritious, but a lot of gelatin and some things that you're like, oh, really? That's an interesting concept. But yeah, it is really interesting. Little Woman is a very rich story through food. Louisa May Alcott takes a lot of time to introduce that food. And I just was thinking about one reason why I think the food connections with Little Woman are so strong is that's one of the very, I'm trying to think of the best way to word this, because it opens with such a strong, maybe not opens, but like the food on Christmas Day that the Lawrences send over is like just a very pivotal key moment in the beginning of the story that makes such a memorable impression. Yes, absolutely. The whole book is so domestic and cozy. Like you just get the sense that you are in this like warm, toasty house with them preparing food. And then there's, I also think of like Joe's disaster of a dinner when they have that cranky old woman over for tea, I think it is. And Joe like messes up everything and it's awful and they have to have bread and butter and olives instead. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, I think that's such a wonderful contrast that we have like that really beautiful, like perfect meal from the Lawrence's in the beginning. But there's also a meal that's disastrous. Like the food isn't always OK. It isn't always perfect. It's like relatable. It's very relatable to see like the contrast between the best that happened and also then the worst that can happen. Yes. Yeah. And then the other disaster situation is when Amy, I don't know if you remember when she invites all of her fancy art friends over for lunch and she plans this elaborate menu of which I have to mention one of the items was cold tongue because that was apparently very fancy back then along with chicken and like chocolate and ice cream. And she invites 12 of her friends over and only one of them shows up. And it's like, it's devastating for her, which I, mean, that's I remember of that. that would be devastating. No, that would be so devastating. I know. So yeah, all kinds of food scenarios, the Christmas dinner, and then like them giving their meal to a family that is even worse off than they are. There's just so much meaning tied into like, it's usually so much like making food out of gratitude and love. And it really comes through in a story where we might not think about that, like in our everyday lives. It's just we eat all day long, every day, like what's so special about food, but it just really shines, I think, in Little Women. 
I think to what you're saying that like the beginning of Little Women, one of the first like things that things that happens, and I think this is where like the 1994 movie like really opens, is with the March sisters like taking their Christmas breakfast to the Hummels, and then they return, and then Grandfather Lawrence next door noticed that and has sent over food for a like really lovely Christmas dinner to make sure that the March sisters have something wonderful and memorable. And there's just so much about the relationships that are communicated through the food, like through what the March sisters did for the Hummels, through what Grandfather Lawrence did for the March sisters. When we look at Amy and the pickled limes, like what they're communicating about, like Amy's social status in relationship to her peers, Joe's like close, intimate, like friendship relationship with Laurie communicated through food when he's sick. There is a lot of context about how people are interacting with each other that's explained through food and Little Women. Yeah, that's so interesting. I think you are so right. Like Amy trying to impress her friends. Like she knew because Marmy originally suggested, oh, what do you want for lunch? Do you want a cake and sandwiches? And she was horrified. No, that is not going to impress my friends. So yeah, it was a very just part of their social status as well. So in talking about that, like first, like beautiful meal from Grandfather Lawrence, what are some of the things that like you remember the most about that meal? Like what are you the most interested in on that table? Oh, that's a good question. Now I'm trying to think, do they actually, they do go over it in the book, right? What it actually is. Yes, they do. I should know that, but I don't remember. I think this is from the movie, but is it in the book too? The oranges were a big deal, right? I remember the oranges. I think I remember in the 1994 movie, Amy is holding an orange from the loaf of bread when they're putting things together for the Hummels. And she wants to hold onto this orange and keep it. And she does give it to the Hummels. So I'm imagining that oranges must have come back over. Yes. Okay. Yes. The thing I always remember and just always stands out is I think that they make it very clear that there was pink and white ice cream when um, Grandfather Lawrence sent the food over. And I just think about what a treat that would have been. I've also thought about like, how is Grandfather Lawrence stirring it? How did he send it over? Like, what was that on the table? Like, was it pretty soupy? Like, that's just always seemed like when I'm thinking about 1800s America, like how was that being transported? How was it being served? I always wonder that. I don't know. That's such like, yes, in the same way. It's such a minor detail, but I'm like, they didn't have Tupperware. Like where, what were they transporting? Like heavy Crocs that you had to wash in return? Like what, how, yeah, I would like to know the details of that too. (laughs) Yeah. How long was the ice cream on the table? Did they like eat that first? Like I just have a lot of questions about how the ice cream happened. Yeah. And now I'm wondering how it was pink because I was reading that it was it would have been from strawberries or raspberries, but those seasons would be like spring through fall. So I'm just wondering, did he have a greenhouse or he grew like some red fruit or something? I'm curious. Oh, that's a really interesting point on the pink. I hadn't even thought about that because Christmas, my mind always goes to peppermint, but not even oh. thinking about the fact that what would you have been coloring your peppermint ice cream pink with in like right. the 1850s, 1860s? Right. Like, yeah. How would you have been doing that? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. It's a mystery. Oh, that's really fun. I think it's very interesting to to realize in books the words that are used that are maybe the same words that we would use now, but how that word has changed meaning and changed like presentation in the food over time. Yes. So when I was looking at this, the other thing that I remembered that I think is a very interesting use of food is Hannah making the girls turnovers in the morning and then carrying them in their pockets to keep their hands warm as a muff. Yes, that's so cozy. Yes, I know. But also like 
just food in your pocket with your hands on them is also kind of like questionable. Like what was okay, all right. I'm sure they were wrapped I mean, in a towel was, or something. I was gonna say, because if she was putting fruit in them, they would have been a little bit sticky. If they had something more savory, they would have been a little bit greasy. So yes, like it is kind of like a sweet idea as a child, but as an adult, it's like, what are the logistics? Like, yeah. are we messy? How sticky are your hands after this experience? So let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about like eating like the March sisters in a modern context. So you've been like looking through the cookbook. You've also been doing this on your podcast. Can you just start out by telling me like what are some things you would do if you wanted to like capture what the March sisters were eating and like the spirit of food in Little Women? Yeah, again, this is just so I want to give credit where credit is due. This is that Little Women cookbook that I mentioned. So they talk about how at first glance, the food that they were eating at this time seemed bland and just like meat and potatoes kind of food. But what kind of elevated it for them was that they were really big in this time period and this region, really big on like sauces and ketchups and gravies. Like they had a large variety. Like to us, we might think that doesn't give you a lot of options, but that was a lot of how they added flavor to the food. So I thought that was really interesting. I haven't actually cooked anything yet from here, but the writers are also saying that a lot of the recipes looked really simple and bland, just reading them on the page, but they were different enough from our modern technique that they tried them. And then they were really surprised at how delicious they were. So just like little simple things, how they would like they do a roast chicken that you just roast it a normal way, basting it every 20 minutes or so. But then they have this sauce that's called like a drawn butter sauce. And I really want to try it because it's like you, I think like simmer milk and then you add butter to it. And then heat that again, like froth it up. Anyway, it's like a butter gravy or something. Like, how could you go wrong there? So anyway, they said that was surprisingly delicious. So just little things like that. I feel like they were good at infusing like flavor or just extra fat content that would just make it not a boring, I don't know, meat and potatoes kind of thing that we would think about. I think that's so interesting because I think so much when I think about food, I think about the ingredients, but thinking that like it's the technique that was really lending like the color and uniqueness to their recipes and what they were eating. Just small little details. I also wonder too, and I don't know if this is true, but I'm just thinking about their ingredients would have often been a lot more locally sourced and a lot more closely sourced. Like even though they may have had like less variety in produce, it would have been produce that they grew or was grown in their region. And we just know that tends to be better produce. And so I wonder if those things like gave some enhancement to their food that maybe when you're like buying apples out of season, that it's not as exciting as if they're like, these are the apples that have grown at this tree at your house that are like like picked when they're just the right ripeness. Yes, absolutely. I think we definitely underestimate that or just don't think make that connection. Yeah, one of the recipes, they well, they quoted like an actual historical recipe from that time period, which were by the way that this cookbook points out, like they're really they were really vague. If you got a cookbook from them back then, like you would just be like, what? They weren't ever cooking in ovens that had knobs for the temperature. So they never said the temperature. They would just say, put it in a quick flame or a quick oven until it looks ready. Okay. I don't know what to do with that. But one of the, one of the recipes said, pick the cucumbers while the dew is still on them. Yes. When you say fresh, like this is extremely fresh. (laughs) This is like that morning fresh. (laughs) I'm delighted by the fact that it's just put it in the oven till it's done. But this is when you need to pick the cucumbers. Like what, like a variety, just a range. That's a range of instructions. That is hilarious. I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. Yeah. Like either like 
overly specific or just you'll know it in your bones like when it's done <laughs> it's just like cooking with vibes like you just gotta feel it <laughs> I don't know I feel like I wouldn't do I would go into that being like super positive and like, yeah okay I can do this but I just feel like it really wouldn't turn out well for me <laughs> it gives a lot of context to why Joe had so much trouble with that meal that ended up to be yes. a mess like it wasn't like she got great instructions. It wasn't like she could Google it. And she honestly probably hadn't been super interested when people were telling her things before. So mm-hmm. in this moment when she was relying on herself, like where were her resources? Exactly. I love there's, yeah, the quote from the book is something like, that's when Joe realized that to be a cook, you need more than just energy and goodwill. And I thought that was hilarious. Like, <laughs> true. Very true. Very relatable to life. There are lots of things that I realize I'm going to need more than energy and goodwill to be successful yes. at. <laughs> yes. So is there anything else in the cookbook that you're like excited to try or you're like, this is something that is piquing your interest about it? Yeah, a few. Let's see. I really like bread, like most people, I feel like. There were some potato rolls that looked really good that they recommended like doubling as hamburger buns, even though they didn't have hamburgers or hamburgers were not invented until the 1880s. Oh, there was. Okay, this sounds it sounds kind of weird, but it's called potted ham. And the authors say it's really good and it's almost like something that you could serve as an hors d'oeuvre with crackers, but it sounds a little odd when you're reading it. You basically, you blend, you put ham, cooked ham in a food processor with a lot of butter and then a few spices, cayenne, ground mace, and nutmeg. I don't normally think of mace as something I cook with, but anyway, they said it was really good and I'm really intrigued. And then you like put it in a little ramekin with butter and seal it with butter Anyway, and let it refrigerate just until the butter hardens. And then you like, it's like a traveling food. Like you can take it for traveling. It's ready to go. That's so interesting. And once again, like just the technique, put this in the fridge so the butter seals so that it can be used for this purpose because of what they would have had access to and what they would have needed to prepare for traveling. That's very interesting. I'm always interested in, like in our podcast, we talk a lot about Marilla Cuthbert from Anne of Green Gables. Like she, her pantry was just stock full all the time. And what my question is, is like, do they really have enough visitors to eat all of this? Because these baked goods did not have preservatives in them. They didn't have refrigerators. I'm just really impressed by the amount of baked goods that just go in and out of people's kitchens back in, the, in this time period. <laughs> so delightful to think about. It's also overwhelming to think about when you think about them being stocked full, that like when it came to other things that they were preserving, like jams or like fruit and vegetables that they would have been doing that because like we said like when you're getting produce it's like fresh and beautiful and local and you can only get it when it's growing which is a very Mm -hmm. overwhelming thought to think about making sure that there is enough food through the times when it wouldn't be growing i know yes their relationship with food was just so different than ours today and i think that's partly why it's so charming why it really gets a spotlight in these older books because they did have yeah like you were saying this yeah just a a different Like they were much more interactive process than ours is with food today. So when you think about Little Women, like we've talked about this with the food, there's like the food itself, but then there's also like the relationships with the food, what the food said about relationships with others, like honestly, kind of the spirit of food, like how they were consuming food and sharing food. So when you're thinking about eating like a March sister from that aspect of like how food is being shared or what it's saying about relationships, what are some key things that you think capture that and maybe how someone might interact with food in a modern context? 
Oh, that's such a good question. The first thing that comes to mind is like Hannah, the cook in their home, was very considerate and like just clearly made them food out of love for them. Was very could see that they were low in spirits, so she immediately made them coffee to boost their spirits. So just things like that are very like prescriptive. Like she sees the problem and so she knows what to do in the kitchen. I just think is so loving. And then also when when Beth is sick, when she like isn't leaving her room. They like the whole house like rallies together and just makes all of her favorite things or just makes goes out of their way to make things that are just like more appetizing to look at because she didn't have that big of an appetite. But just like how thoughtful you can be with food when you're making it for somebody else. And it just, yeah, it just makes it so sweet and special. I love that. And I honestly feel like that connects back to the idea of technique is what was making so many of these things special. Like they didn't have the like access to the vast number of things that we have that we add to recipes, like so many ingredients. (laughs) I'm just thinking of some recipes I pull up and I'm like, why? Why are there 20 ingredients in this? (laughs) But like the technique made it special. And then also, like you're saying, like that intention, like and that what the need that the food was being created to fill. When I think about what I've learned from these older books that have all these this meal preparation is that, yes, like sometimes in the, like the example of Amy trying to impress her friends, there is that. But most of the time, they're just like it's really created out of love and what they have on hand and not to impress. So I don't know. I feel like a few years ago, I was intimidated to have people over because I would just start looking through all my cookbooks for like something that we didn't have every day, like something really special. And once I gave that up and just realized, like, I'm just going to cook the things that I love to eat. And usually that's a really delicious stew or soup with homemade bread. And that's not fancy. But once I started like serving more of those kinds of things to my friends, I just took off so much more pressure. And I think that it just creates a more natural environment. I feel like when I go out of my way to create something fancier, I'm more thinking about like, how is it coming across? Are they liking it? Did I do it right? Maybe I didn't like whatever. I did something wrong. Whereas if I just go with my old standbys, then I'm not worried about that. And then I can focus on making my guests feel welcome. And I think that's something that the heroines are really good with. And that to me, that's that's one of the biggest modern takeaways. I love that so much. That's like the effort and the love is like what's making things stand out and completely changes the feeling of the gathering that you're having. If you're really overwhelmed and really stressed about it being correct, that does set a tone for the whole experience of the food. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So before we wrap up, will you just tell people where they can find you on the internet? Oh, sure. My shop is just carrottoppapershop.com. That will take you to my Etsy page. You can also find me on Instagram with that same under that same handle. And then our podcast is, yeah, Eat Like a Heroine. You can find that anywhere as well. Perfect. And I'll link to those things in the show notes. Thank you again for your time. It's been really lovely to visit with you this morning. Thank you, Madeline. This was so much fun. Thank you so much for thinking of me to have me on the show. You're welcome. Thank you so much to Jenny for joining me. And thank you so much to you for your time. Thank you for coming on this wonderful March Sisters journey with me. I've had such a happy March. It's kind of made me want to maybe do this again, maybe for a different book. And and we'll see. We'll see what happens. Next week, we'll be back to some typical content. I've got an awesome travel episode, and I think you're really going to love it. You can connect with me on Twitter at Madeline K. You can connect with this podcast on Instagram at Not A Backup Plan. 
please rate and review. Please leave five stars. Please let me know what you're thinking. It really does help. And in the meantime, remember, this is your life. It's not a plan B. Bye.